The only constant in business is change. Welcome to Trends, Bends, and Opportunities, the show that explores business ups, downs, and possibilities. I'm Pat Lynch, and I'm a retired police supervisor, and now I teach and mentor real estate agents who are looking to stand out above the rest. My partner is Dr. Lauren Murfield. He's a former college professor who now works with business leaders, small and large, to do what they never thought possible. Together, we're Doc and the Cop, and we're here to help you think bigger, reach higher, and do what you never thought possible in order to deliver disruptive success for today's world. Let's go. And welcome back to Trends, Bends, and Opportunities. And I am Pat Lynch, and I am your host. And as you can see, hanging over my right shoulder is the man himself, uh, my cohort with all of this. <laughs> Getting deep in here, isn't it, Doc? You know, I'm going to need some hip waiters, I think, by the time we're done. <laughs> Dr. Lauren Murfield, right there. Hey, good to be back. We have got some good things today. Uh, Ken Reed, who has got international experience, going to give us some perspective on this COVID reactions, the trends, the bends, and the opportunities. Hey, that would make a good podcast. What a great podcast. It? We should have one like that. It's yeah, called that, Trends, Bends, and Opportunities. It's got a nice ring to it. Yeah, that would yeah. be great. But let's get going. Let's, let's introduce Ken. I mean, he's got Army background, then civilian. He's a serial entrepreneur. He's done a lot of great things. Besides that, he's a nice guy. Do we have to salute him? I don't know. We'll ask the, him the, last answer, the, the answer is yes, you do. Just, uh, <laughs> So, <laughs> this is this usually, is I, get, I, usually I, get, I get the boy, I get the boy scout salute. So, oh, is that uh, it? I don't know. <laughs> so anyway, Ken oh. Reed, Ken Reed, welcome to the program. Thanks, thanks, Lauren. I appreciate that. Nice to meet you, Pat. You know, let's let's start off. I know you've lived in South Korea. You lived in the Netherlands. What are the trends that you've seen in those those two countries um, with COVID? Since, since this thing started? Well, you know, one of the biggest differences between those countries and the U.S. is because they have a very small population, it's easier for the population to be more compliant. Uh, plus, it's a little more common for the population to be compliant, especially with public health measures. Uh, it was not unusual when I lived in Korea that if somebody was sick, they would wear a mask to work just if they felt sick or somebody near them was sick and it was a preventative measure. And that was just a normal thing. And then when I, I lived in the Netherlands and their healthcare and public health policies are very practical because there's no real question about politics of wearing a mask or not wearing a mask. It's just considered a good public health measure. And so people did it because it was a good idea. So it's just a good habit that they've gotten into, really a cultural habit, which um, is a little less individualistic than what the United States is. Well, I think, yes. I mean, there's always room to share your opinion. And that's one thing, if you do meet Dutch people, they're proud to share their opinion. And, and you will sometimes think they're being very brutally honest, but, and they are, because they think that's a benefit. But at the same time, uh, there's a common sense part of public health and they know to wash their hands after they, you know, go to the bathroom or whatever they're doing. It's just a question of being uh, practical and not questioning really the science or common sense. I, I have noticed that, uh, you know, on the news and whatnot, 
think 10 years or more, when you would see people walking in some of these countries, it would, wasn't uncommon to see one or two people wearing a mask and never gave it much thought until we get this COVID thing. Um, but I guess they're conditioned to that a little bit. Well, again, I think it's, it's probably one of these things that I would guess is taught in from their version of junior high and up is that just as a courtesy to other people in the, in the population that you, if you felt sick to wear a mask, just, just as a courtesy to other people, because you, one, you didn't want to get sick, but you didn't want to be embarrassed by getting somebody else sick. And that was, the, I think, the point of view there. So you, you mentioned um, that Korea especially uh, did well in part because of the small, small population and everything, but also they were more used to dealing with SARS and a few other things like pandemics, right? Right, because they were pretty close to the initial breakouts of SARS and also the H1N1 uh, virus, uh, they knew they were very, very vulnerable in terms of, uh, you know, viral infections, bacterial infections in the population. And so the government took public policy steps to prevent a future pandemic from happening. So when this pandemic hit, they already had a, a policy in place and, and everybody was accustomed to, to, to reacting to it. Kind of like us Floridians with hurricanes. You're, exactly you know, you right. have to remind people every year to get to put their hurricane list together to do their stuff. You at least, you, you have some general recollection of what it's going to be like. And uh, the fact that you're not going to be able to buy duct tape, why, I don't know. Or, <laughs> but, uh, you know, you, you have this thing, you know, okay, you already know that you need to stack up. Like we stack up extra cases of water starting in, you know, April. Uh, because the last thing I want to do is stand in line at the grocery store to buy cases of water when a month prior you could buy a whole truckload and nobody would bat an eye at you. But now that there's a hurricane coming, you can you get one and you got to wait in line for it. Well, you're exactly right. And so I think every area of the U.S. has their own little thing. So it would be hurricanes here. In the Midwest, it might be uh, tornadoes. Uh, up north, it would be blizzards in the wintertime. I, I, I have been out of that environment for 40 years and wouldn't remember how to, re, how to prepare for a blizzard. But it, it becomes just a regular thing. And I think that uh, once people get that accustomed to it, then they become safer just out of habit. They don't have to think about this thing or justify it to themselves. They just do it because it's a good idea. So what about the Netherlands? I can understand um, South Korea and that but Europe doesn't, didn't get a lot with SARS or MERS or those, did they? Uh, they I think everybody uh, during those um, pandemics had some cases. Uh, they weren't as numerous as the cases we're having uh, with the current pandemic. Uh, but because of those cases, it made them do some gaming and then improve their public policy because just in case something did happen, they would be prepared for it. And I think that's what you're seeing now. Um, and I think what you'll see too, in the early days of the pandemic, say January, early February, uh, there were cases blossoming. Some, they, some countries did not take it seriously. For example, the UK. And then uh, all of a sudden it's there and then they have to react to it in a way which is what they did in terms of public, public policy and closing down things and wearing masks and practicing so, social distancing. So the numbers actually 
dropped in terms of a, a per capita number. Well, they probably had the initial attitude that we had, which is this is on the other side of the world, um, and this is not our problem, and we don't usually get these problems, and let them worry about it. And that's not that's not saying I agree with that thinking. That just seems to be the thinking that everybody had when you when uh, you know when they started talking about shutting down. Uh, air travel and you had you know one party saying no 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 you can't do that you're discriminating and the other party saying you know well we're not sure and yet you know i mean there's a whole lot of stuff going on um not to get into the politics of it all but uh a lot of it does have to do with the fact that these things always seem to affect somewhere else well i think uh you know every every situation like this it's never just red or blue it's very nuanced and I don't want to make excuses for any government, any place in the world. But I will say that in the early part of the pandemic, especially like January, uh, even though the Chinese had an idea of what was going on, they hadn't, I don't think, developed the genome of the virus. And they uh, were sharing information with the WHO. And the WHO was giving advice out. But the WHO advice is only as good as the science. And that's why people think, well, the who's being wishy-washy. And if I can defend H WHO, they, they have to adjust their advice based on the information they had. And so when they started off early January, no need to wear masks. And then at the end of January, yeah, masks are a good idea. It's because they just didn't know what they were dealing with, whether it was a foodborne or, or a contact virus or what they later learned and it was, you know, the vector was droplets and it was aspirated. So that's one of the things that's kind of hard to do is you can't make a blame on something because a lot of countries are, resp are responding to the best information that they're getting from the World Health Organization. And then they're given the best information they can based on the reporting from countries. Let's take a quick break and move into that when we talk about the bends and we'll be right back. sure to like, follow, and share us wherever you're tuned in today. All right, so you, you're, you bring up a good point with the, the WHO, and, you know, they have taken a lot of flack, and uh, they deserve some of it, maybe, um, for some of the, the ways they communicate the information as you said and we've, we've had dr berman on the show a couple of times and i know you know dr berman and you know clearly he knows what he's talking about and and obviously the information has changed since january to you know august september range there's a lot of information that is much better known and so that's how we can make that bend um and so then you start to see how these these countries even like you said even the who in their bend seems to be different than what our bend was. Yeah, didn't, didn't um, you talked about a different program, different policies in South Korea. What did they do that we didn't? Or what did they do better than what we did? Well, I think one thing that they did is that they had a very defined public policy and then there were very defined actions that the population had to take. And then there was a penalty for people who did not take those, uh, put those policies to work. 
And I think that we were taking a softer approach and thinking this would be like a flu that would just pass through the population and not uh, affect us in the ways that it did. Well, I'm I think curious. That's penalties, uh, we, we had a program on uh, our Holy Crap, How They Do That podcast where we talked about the 1918 pandemic and they had not only public shaming going on, but they also had fines. Is this what South Korea did? I, you know, I couldn't speak to that exactly, uh, but I wouldn't be surprised that if a restaurant opened, it would be closed immediately, or if there was, uh, there would be some uh, police response or governmental penalty, like a ticket of some kind, whether it's criminal or civil, I don't really know, but, uh, you know, the mechanism was in place for compliance, but at the same time, uh, my experience of being in Korea is, is that everybody is very concerned about the community. And if you weren't sticking out of the community in a way that was negative for the community, uh, you know, you would be pressured by your neighbors and your family. And so that, I, I don't want to say public shaming was in fact the case, because I'm sure it was much gentler and kinder, but, you know, I think it was well, there as a mechanism for sure. Kind of like a mother's uh, guilt. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> yeah, it all depends on how you were brought up, whether you, whether you know that as Jewish guilt or Catholic guilt or mother's guilt. Uh, um, it's, it was always these subtle things, you know, and when mom says, I don't know if I would do that if I were you, that means you, you better, better not, not do that. that. <laughs> Read between the lines. No, just interpret it differently. Well, I think whatever the, the flavor of the guilt, that mom's guilt is pretty universal. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So how did, how did the Netherlands, I mean, they're a much smaller country. They're, they're you know, Northern Europe on the verge of Scandinavia. I mean, uh, that's, that's a far cry from South Korea, isn't it? How does how the culture different and how did they respond different? Well, I think instead of focusing on the differences, I think the commonality is that as the information came forward, they then adopted a very cogent and clear public health policy and then implemented that in the Netherlands also. And so you could, if you look at their, their uh, case rate and the mortality rate, you, you would really see that it, it went up and then came down uh, over time. You, you, would, you would see that. And, and so instead of having it go up and then plateau like we're experiencing right now, uh, a lot of the European countries are, are now on the downhill slide. And now they're experimenting with what they're going to do in terms of reopening things, schools, restaurants, stores. And then if they see that uptick, then they know they can bring it back again. But they needed to have that, uh, that um, downward slope in order to ensure that they weren't making things worse. What did, what, what did Sweden do? Because Sweden took a different approach, right? They yes, they did. Out. So, yeah, so um, I, I'm going to deal in generalities. I don't remember the specific numbers, but if I was looking at the mortality rates in most of Europe, uh, so their mortality rates were just about two and a half three and a half percent, depending on the country you're in. And, and that was the mortality rate I'm talking about are people who, taste, who tested positively, positively, but then passed away. But because they took the public health measures, they could then focus on that. Uh, Sweden took a different approach 
their approach was to allow people to become infected because their public policy guy thought, well, we'll get herd immunity faster than anybody and this herd immunity will protect us. But the thing about herd immunity is we usually achieve that through vaccinations, not through allowing a pandemic just to kind of go through the population and then do what it wants. So that uh, having that herd immunity comes in at a cost. So whereas most of Europe was two and a half to three and a half percent, Sweden was seven and a half percent, almost three times more than anybody else. And they just did it because they have public health policy. And it's, it's kind of interesting because I think everybody is saying, okay, this was a bad idea. But I don't see the policymakers at the very, very top level in Sweden stepping down. So it's, that's kind of interesting politics that I'm kind of curious about. So Ken, let's talk about uh, when we get back, uh, let's talk about the opportunities that this has presented. Um, and we'll be right back. If you're a Florida real estate agent and you are looking to stand out above the rest, check out Momentum Real Estate at winmomentum.com. That's W-I-N momentum.com. Okay, so obviously we talked about the trends. We've talked about the bends. There's got to be some opportunities, Is it uh, whether it's opportunities for growth, or opportunities for learning, for knowledge, uh, for change, for improvement. Um, what, do you, what, what do you think, Ken? Well, um, you know, to be honest on a personal level, um, it so happens I look a lot better with a mask on. So that's been a benefit for me. I didn't want so to I'm say kinda... that uh, because I happen to be, you know, mm -hmm. I was told I have a perfect uh, face for radio. Um, so uh, I didn't want to say that to you. So I'm looking at this opportunity, plus I can, you know, my wife is making these amazing masks and I can accessorize my clothes. So I'm thrilled with that part. In terms of uh, opportunities and trends, I have to tell you that if there's been two really, really big changes and big pushes, I'm seeing it in telemedicine because people are now, it, that's always been a thing, but now it's becoming a primary, primary way of contact with nurse practitioners and doctors and specialists who are concerned about meeting people who may or may not have uh, uh, be exposed to COVID-19. Well, and if then, you're okay with a shameless ahead. plug, our, um, on our podcast, uh, Holy Crap, How'd They Do That? We did a, a thing on telemedicine. Didn't we? It was on TBO. Was it on TBO? See, we got so many podcasts going on, but we talked about it. And telemedicine's actually been around for about 150 years. And it has been available in remote countries all around the world for a long time and almost unheard of in the United States. Right, yeah, I agree with you. And, and now, I mean, I, you're right, that is a huge opportunity that has come along because it's, it's brought, it's forced telemedicine into the mainstream. And now, you know, I literally, I've had several doctor's appointments throughout this uh, pandemic. And, you know, they, they, at first it was, hey, we're canceling because we're not doing appointments to, hey, would you prefer to talk with the doctor over telemedicine? And I'm like, why not? I mean, all you're going to do is read test results to me. Why am I driving all the way to the office, sitting in the office for 45 minutes for them to call me back to tell me what the results are? 
Sure. No, and, and there's an efficiency to it, but I can also imagine that it's becoming uh, tough on staff because now they, they have that density of people they have to hit every 10, 15 minutes has probably gotten worse, but still, I think it's a great idea. Well, the other good. trend that I'm seeing is, is maybe in, the, in terms of education. Uh, I mean, online learning has always existed, but now uh, high schools and colleges, every, every level of education now is going into a vir virtual format. And that's a big challenge. And I think that, uh, you know, because they're trying to um, uh, deal with the needs of the children and also the parents, because parents who have to watch their kids all the time can't work. And one thing school does was free one of the spouses or parents up to do work. And that's affected everybody economically. But I think one thing that people are not taking into account a little bit is that if you have a regular, let's say a high school, that at any one time has, let's say a hundred classes going at once, uh, all of a sudden you have to have bandwidth for a hundred video calls to present and you know having a wi-fi built for just regular texting and reading is completely different than having it to manage all the teachers and students that are going to have to come in and out of that class so that's kind of an interesting little uh, thing to see how they're going to manage that well yeah certainly we have the technology but like you said it's the bandwidth of it and the the ability you know at I'm astonished to find out that there are people that don't have internet in, say, the Tampa Bay area. You right. would think that number's got to be fairly low unless they're, and no offense, but unless they're above 85 years old, they probably have some sort of connectivity. But there's a difference between going on and checking your email once a week to, or, you know, to streaming, to live streaming, you know, a class uh, like, like a Zoom call um, with 100 people, because now you're talking about you need some serious bandwidth to that. And multiply that times a whole neighborhood, times a whole community, times a whole city, times a whole metro area, times a whole state, times a whole country. Right. Well, I think what you're also finding, it's not just uh, uh, an age differential, but I think you're finding a, a lot of people with economic issues at the lower economic end are, are running into some very severe, severe problems. Uh, for example, if you don't have the money to pay your internet bill and you, you get cut off, and then all of a sudden the, the schools are cut off, and, and I mean, the kids are cut off from school access, and, and that's just, uh, and that's a real thing that's happening, that's happening right now. The, the thing that I see is, I, I equate this to like World War II. And you know, what we had to do military-wise, and I, I know people don't wanna compare the two, but what we had to do in the military um, to get ready and to amp up, to, to amp up our, our production and be ready to go to war I think is equivalent to what the education has got to do now is that it's like, um, it's a huge challenge. Like the, the, not only the connectivity, but the idea and know that some of this is there's homeschooling going on. And some of the people at the lower economic classes have not had the opportunity to be educated and understand how to educate. And so then they're, supposed to be doing uh lead, teaching your kids and it's like 
kind of the blind leading the blind, no offense to the lower economic class, but if, if you haven't had that experience and then all of a sudden you have to do that, I think you're just making a lot of disadvantage. You're just propagating that disadvantage. Yeah, well, it's almost like taken from a like 100 years ago where it wouldn't be uncommon for parents to not have finished school. Right. And so they couldn't, it's hard if you left with a fifth grade education because you went to leave to work the farm and you come back and, and now your kids are growing up, you can't teach them eighth grade math because you didn't make it to the eighth grade. And, and, and let's be fair too, it's not just economic. You get a lot of people that are really not teachers that all of a sudden it say, well, I don't know that stuff. I haven't, I haven't studied that. I haven't, I'm not up to date on it. And now they're going to be teaching it. So I think one of the opportunities, maybe there's a lot of parents who are criticizing the teachers that maybe even a little, a little more appreciative now. <laughs> well, I'll be honest. So my kids went to school in Dutch schools, right? And because of my limited ability with the language and my zero experience with the school system, it was really hard for me to help coach them uh, in their classwork. So we really leaned on their mother a lot to do this at the house because, you know, I, I, my basic grammar was very basic grammar. So it was a, it was a difficult thing. So I completely understand where uh, a lot of parents would have this as a challenge if they'd not been exposed to the material. But you make a very good point when you talk about going on a military footing. And if I can put it like this, one thing that made that military footing possible was a coherent national policy that drove you in that direction. And that, that's, uh, again, I think a common theme you'll see in all the countries that are successfully dealing uh, with it is that they have a national policy that gives guidance and gives specific uh, information and makes it available to people. Uh, one thing that I think was interesting too, if I can just step back a little bit. Well, let's, uh, let's unpack the, that in just a minute. Yeah, go ahead. I like where you're go going. Ahead. But mm -hmm. let's take a quick break. And when we get back, I want to unpack that because and, 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 you hit a really good point. If you're a business leader and you want to do what you never thought possible, connect with Dr. Murfield at murfieldcoaching.com. That's murfieldcoaching.com. Okay, Ken, you're on to something here, so go ahead. So one of the things that we were talking about was national policy. And I think uh, the most important part of national policy is good information. What happened in Europe is that the, the policy for reporting COVID cases was very, very consistent across the board. There was no, if you were in a nursing home that got reported, if you tested positive for antigens, it got reported. If you got positive, tested positive for the virus, it got reported. For antibodies, it got reported. It got reported across the board, so they knew the full extent of all the information. And that was one of the key things to a coherent policy is knowing what you're dealing with. And that's been one of the complications for us is you're hearing stories about some numbers not being reported for whatever purpose, and that just then becomes and then instead of the CDC being the reporting agency, which has been the case since the CDC was, was formed, and now there's a lot of divergence and different organizations that people have to report to at the state 
and federal level. So it's, it's complicated then. Well, I think that is definitely one of the things that slows things down is the amount of red tape. Um, and, you know, we've been dealing with states' right issues for 150 years or more. And that, that's one of the things that sets us apart from Europe is, you know, we have 50 mini countries inside our overall umbrella country. We just don't call it that, right? Um, they're called states. And each one of them has their own plan and politics, good, bad, or indifferent. And then we have this extra layer of a federal government and they have their own, maybe let's call it an agenda. Good, again, good, bad, or indifferent. Diversity and, of ideas, diversity yeah, of perspectives, and, influence. You know, and then, you know, and of course, you know, you get two people together, you get two ideas, you get, two, you get 18 opinions out of it. Um, you know, and this, that's where you get the guy who fell, falls out of an 80-story building on an accident and he had tested positive for COVID and they call it a COVID death. Well, because there's something down the line that somebody's getting credit for or against. And the reason I can speak authoritatively on that is because that's how we did it at the police department because the rules were set up. So like for a good example, not to get us way off topic, but date rape is not considered rape to the federal government. If you know the person who raped you, that's not reported as a crime. Well, that is about the stupidest thing ever, right? Especially because everything they teach us is rape is bad, right? No means no. But on a state level, that's a crime somebody's going to go to prison for. But you don't even report that to the federal government as a crime because the federal government doesn't perceive a, relate, a relational sexual assault as a crime. And, and again, a good, bad, or indifferent, there, it's, it's the fact that we have these two systems. Throw the health system into this, and I'll, I'll guarantee it layers the same way. And that's where you get the, the different reportings, and you know, they're, they're, they're calling it a COVID death, even if they died of a, um, something totally unrelated. Well, I can't speak to that part. I think that, but uh, the European countries, they're reporting to, to the H, uh, H, uh, WHO, uh, what the WHO is asking for. I think that's the difference too. So it's, uh, I think there's a little bit of confusion about the World Health Organization. They're not a policing organization. They're a UN organization that gives you the best advice that you can take. And then if something happens in your country, they'll throw resources at you to help you deal with it, but they can't make any country in the world do anything. That's just the way they are. They're advisory and response, um, and their information is only as good as the member countries report up to them, right? And if it's not good, then they're, they're, they're frankly screwed too. They just have no way around. You know, Ken, this is absolutely fascinating, giving us a, a world perspective, or at least out of Europe and South Korea, makes it absolutely fascinating. And I know uh, we could talk on this for another half hour, but we need, we need to, we're up against time. Let me give a quick challenge to people out there. I think what Ken is ta uh, talking about, we need to think bigger. And in some ways, we need to think bigger about what's going on with the confusion <clears throat> And a lot of times it comes from, are we getting the right stats? Are we getting the right, the clarity of information? Mm -hmm. And that's one thing I think we really got to focus on is whenever we're, we're up against doing something great, because that's what this show is about. This show is about going up against the worst challenges 
and especially as challenges you see here and now. What challenges are you facing? And when you do, like the pandemic, but there's all kinds of other challenges, we want you to think bigger. And it starts by getting the correct data, getting a clarity of message, setting a policy, and basically saying, what do I want and where am I going to go? When you can do that, then you can reach higher to do what you never thought possible. And um, with that, I want to thank Ken Reed. Ken, uh, great perspective. I love what you're talking Absolutely. about. I, I love the diversity of it and understanding it from a different angle. Because a lot of times we're stuck. We, we, we're getting frustrating results because we haven't looked at other angles. And we think our way is the only way. Mm -hmm. So Ken, thanks for being on and uh, greatly appreciate it. So with that, we're going to say goodbye in our socially distancing way of we jazzy do, We hands. do jazzy hands. That's our socially acceptable. Thanks, Ken. I, I feel like Bob Posse. Thanks a lot, you guys. I enjoyed it. Take care. Thanks. <laughs>